Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Greetings fellow time travelers. Always lovely to have you with me. Before this week's episode, big thanks to all the people who support the podcast series by signing up to the patreon.com site. It's that input, that financial input from the Patreon presence that makes everything else possible. So if you're already a member, thank you. Uh, If you're not a member yet and you're inspired to be one, just go to patreon.com, find my site by name, Neil Oliver. Uh, You have to part with a little bit of cash, uh, but you'll become a member and you get access then. You get behind the velvet rope, you might say. Weekly question and answer session with me, vodcasts, podcasts, competitions, periodic rants about the state of the world. It's a like-minded bunch of questioning, curious types, all of it underscored by an interest in history. So come aboard. That'll do for the advert. It's now time to strap yourselves into the time machine as we set off on the next stop on my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. The sharpening of minds across Europe ramps up a gear. Universities take root throughout the continent. First Bologna in Italy, then Oxford in England and Salamanca in Spain, followed in short order by Cambridge, Padua, Coimbra. The thinking of the Christian church is in the background and very much ever-present. But ancient classical learning also feeds into the mix via Islamic scholars. An intellectual ferment fusing the ancient classical world with Christian thinking occurs. A strong marriage of ideas that will stand the test of time is born. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the world. Hi Neil. In the last episode, it was 1281 as we travelled with Kublai Khan's mighty invasion fleet towards Japan to be thwarted at the last by Kamikaze. Where are we this week? Morning, Paul. Uh, This week sees us swapping continents. We're leaving Asia and heading to Europe. We've also crossed over into the next century. It's now 1320, to be precise, in our story of the world. The intellectual push that will help power and drive Europe forward is hotting up. This episode sees us in Italy as one of the great masterpieces of medieval literature is being written. We're looking over the shoulder of Dante Alighieri as he puts the final full stop to his divine comedy. We're in Florence, in Tuscany, in Italy. Um, And when? 
when are we? We're in the, again, we're in the early part of the 14th century. And we're dealing specifically with uh, someone whose name will be familiar, but maybe more of the details of that person will be a little bit harder to grasp at for a lot of people. It's Dante, Dante Alighieri, great writer and cornerstone of Italian literature, if not world literature, and we'll get into him. I mean, basically, we've we've kind of touched on universities already, the the emergence of universities. We've definitely dealt with the, the emergence of and spread of the the Christian faith, the Christian church. And it, it's a fact that for the longest time in Europe, the church, the Christian church, the Catholic church, as far as we're all concerned, absolutely dominated education. It was almost exclusively men that were educated, not women. The students and the teachers were all men. And ghosting in the background all the time was the Christian faith because once universities began to be established the guiding principle or the intention was to keep the Christian God and the Christian faith front and centre of everything so I I kind of had the church just dominated the whole affair and that's another theme of this one we're in Florence we're in the 14th century but we're, we're in the universities. We're considering the, the rise and rise of university education. There are unis from the end of the 11th century, actually. Certainly in Europe. You've got Bologna. You've got Oxford. In this a battle between Oxford and Cambridge, Oxford is the oldest. There's a university in Salamanca, in Spain. Later, you know, there's a university in Cambridge. Padua, in Coimbra. In, uh, in Portugal and they all, they all, everyone, everyone wants one it becomes a must have addition to your all the cities on the up want a university and there's almost a paradox for Christianity it's more than a paradox really Christianity is always there it's always there shaping, guiding dominating, overseeing looming over education but inadvertently at the same time you have this existential almost challenge for the for Christianity because in being so central to the lives of, of clever thinking people, Christianity itself comes to be questioned and understood, contextualised, all sorts of things going on. Ultimately I suppose Christianity is disciplined. Bright people were paying close attention. And ultimately really it took hundreds of years, but reason sprang into existence or sparked into existence and you might say that minds were made sharp enough like axes that they were then able to cut down the great tree of Christianity in a sense what the Canadian anthropologist Wade Davis has beautifully described as the old growth forest of the mind even Christianity was not immune from the the challenging and the questioning and then finally you end up in a situation where you've got Friedrich Nietzsche saying that God is dead because we made ourselves so clever that we decided we didn't need God or questioned his existence or whatever. So, but all of that, all of that lies away, away in the future uh, at this point. Always, there's no avoiding either the ancient learning of the classical world came to Europe via Islam. That's just a fact. The great scholars of the Islamic faith latched on to the great early learning of the 
Greeks and Chinese and Indian thinkers, but classical Greece in large part. And they had learned to prize the teaching of Aristotle and Euclid and all the rest of it before anyone did in Europe. Bologna was there as a university by 1088, but there were much older universities in the Islamic world. You've got Al-Qarawiyan in Morocco by 859 AD. You've got Al-Azhar in Cairo by 970. So we don't hold the the oldest light when it comes to university here in, here in Europe. It was elsewhere in the world. Um, so God bless them. Those Islamic thinkers translated out of the original and into Arabic the great works of the ancient world. And it was v- because of that effort that the gradually that learning got transplanted into Middle Ages Europe. And, of course, in time, we persuaded ourselves here in Europe that we had this unbroken line of descent from the great Greek thinkers. <laughs> but we wouldn't have had if it hadn't been for Islam. Ironically, might not be the right, but it's surprisingly, for all that they loved, came to love the Greeks, it was a Roman writer who was you might say, worshipped first by the students and and teachers of Europe in the Middle Ages, specifically in the name of Virgil, the great Roman poet Virgil. He was a first century BC human. He's particularly famous for works called the Eclogues. They're also known as the Bucolics because they dealt in the main with um, the lives and times of shepherds and beekeepers and you know other people living living and working with the natural world and the agriculture of the time so you've got the georgics and the aeneid works the names of which will be familiar to people and they've been they've been revered and studied and, and worshipped really ever since eclogue four is particularly famous i've got a quote from it here it deals with the birth of a boy child and the coming of a golden age and the majestic role of circling centuries begins anew. Justice returns with a new breed of men sent down from heaven. Only do thou at the boy's birth, in whom the iron shall cease, the golden age arise. Befriend him. Under thy guidance, what tracks remain of our old wickedness, once done away, shall free the earth from never-ceasing fear. He shall receive the life of gods and see heroes with gods commingling and himself be seen of them and with his father's worth reign over a world at peace. Now you can hear all sorts of um, echoes in there or a foreshadowing of Jesus. You know, the coming of of the boy child Jesus who will bring a a world of peace, a golden age with him. And so because of that, obviously Virgil lived and died you know, in the century before the coming of Jesus Christ. And for that reason, and because he put into words this idea of a, of a boy child being born and, and changing the world and bringing peace and, and being godly, those Christians saw Virgil as a prophet, you know, right up there with Isaiah and the rest, because he was seeing, prophesying the coming of Jesus in advance, obviously. And so that meant that in Virgil, those students of the of the Middle Ages, were able to understand Virgil as the perfect bridge between the classical world and their own world. He he connected the two seamlessly. So that's the the 
that's the sort of wider context for what we're, we're thinking about. But now we get to the moment, the crucial moment in the story of the world. And you might as well say it's 1320, because that's the year when Dante Alighieri, uh, from Florence in Tuscany, completed his Divine Comedy. Everyone's heard of the Divine Comedy, whether they've read it or not. There's a particularly good, I have to say, I, I was all, I've always been a big fan of the writings of uh, Clive James, the Australian writer and broadcaster and poet. And he did. He dedicated a big chunk of his life, largely unknown until the thing published, of, of translating the Divine Comedy from the Italian. He was married to an Italian scholar, and he, with her help, I'm quite sure, he, he produced a, a really very readable translation of the Divine Comedy. Since I stumbled across it, I've always found it the easiest one to read if you're inclined that way. It just maybe because I like his style. So yeah, so the Divine Comedy, everybody's heard of it. Maybe not so many people have actually read it. Dante was born in 1265, but he got himself exiled. <laughs> He's born in the city-state of Florence. There was a political struggle between two groups in Florence. It was the, the Guelphs who supported the Pope and the Ghibellines who supported the Holy Roman Emperor. Dante was a, a, a Guelph. <laughs> I'm not even sure how you pronounce that word. I've only ever read it. I've never, I've never really heard it pronounced. Um, so he, he ended up back in the losing side and he was exiled from the city and he wrote the Divine Comedy in exile which you can tell because it's written in the first person from the point of view of someone who's kind of lost and alone and far from home he started it in 1308 and he finished it in 1320 so it was a long time in the gestation and the, and the producing it was initially highly regarded uh, amongst you know, critics. And then it fell from grace for a long, long time. And it wasn't rehabilitated until uh, around 1800 in the hands of the Romantics. That rehabilitation has seen to it that, that Dante's Divine Comedy is regarded as, it may well be the, the literary masterpiece of the Middle Ages. There are those who say that. But at the very least, it's a cornerstone of Italian literature in the same way that the works of Shakespeare are a cornerstone of English literature. If nothing else, and there's a lot else, the Divine Comedy also fixed the Italian language. Up until that point, there were many dialects and different accents, but through the Divine Comedy, Dante sort of fossilised, fixed his own preferred version of Italian. And it has remained, that has been the, the version of Italian ever since. So, like I say, he started it in 1308. It's an amazing thing, it's a poem. It's 14,000 lines long. It's divided up into what are called cantos, C-A-N-T-O, cantos, which are just divisions of a, a long poem. It's in the first person. You know, it's I did this and I did that. And as I say, he he was in exile, and that's the atmosphere of the thing. It starts with Dante, the actual Dante, real-life Dante lost in a wood. That's how, the, that's how the thing opens. It starts, His glory by whose might all things are moved pieces the universe and in one part sheds more resplendence elsewhere less that's how the thing opens so it's Dante describing his own predicament in the first person it starts on the night before Good Friday uh, at this point Dante has himself as a 35 year old so he's halfway through his, it's no accident that he's halfway through the biblical three score and ten you know he's at the halfway mark in a life and the whole, the whole adventure lasts until the Wednesday after Easter, 
it's all set in the year 1300. Right? So that, that's where that's where Dante fixes fixes it, although he's actually writing it in later years. And it's all about his his journey through hell and purgatory and paradise. You can see it dripping with the fact that it's being written by somebody who's a long way from home. He doesn't go alone. He's escorted through paradise. His guide through paradise is the is the lovely, fragrant uh, Beatrice. But his guide through so she's only his guide for for the for that latter part. His guide through hell and through purgatory is Virgil. Okay, so Dante, in writing the Divine Comedy, is one of those acknowledging the significance of Virgil. It's Virgil who takes him through hell and purgatory and points out to him the things that he needs to see and introduces him to the characters from whom he might derive wisdom. I mean, all the way through to, I mean, the last, where are the, the last lines of it? Power here failed the deep imagining, but already my desire and will were rolled like a wheel that is turned equally by the love that moves the sun and the other stars. So by the end of those 14,000 lines, he has simply, Dante has simply created something that is unequaled. It, well, it's certainly, it's unsurpassed in, in the realm of literature. Because of what it accomplishes, W.B. Yeats, William Butler Yeats, uh, said that Dante was the chief imagination of Christendom. And he again did what Virgil had earlier done, which is to say he wedded the classical world to that world of medieval Europe. And that marriage, that marriage and the significance of that marriage of the classical world and that European world was a marriage that would last and change and affect everything that happened ever after. The intellectual power that these universities and Dante is part of all that, is that what started to power Europe's ascendancy? Yes, it's um, yes, it is. It's part of it, it is, it's part of that. It's all, I suppose, part of that awakening where Europe began to think of itself and position itself as the place to be, where previously there, there were other centres of, of intellectual and every other sort of power. The confidence that comes to Europe during that period of learning you know, and that, that emergence of that understanding and that preparing the coming of reason and, and, and thereby the coming of the scientific method, though it's not there yet, not by a long chalk, but the groundwork of all of that is being laid and it's, it's wholly transformative and it is, it's part of the bedrock that is the firm foundations of what grows in Europe which comes in time to dominate the rest of the world fascinating how there's thinking from around the world and from the classical world and from Islamic uh, world and then they're all build they're building on it aren't they yeah I love the way it's all wedded together in that way you know, I, I love the fact that there's just no denying nor should there be any attempt to deny that you know that you've got um, you've got this Islam comes in this in the seventh century and then in the early centuries thereafter the achievements of the Islamic world because of men of thought and it's mostly men the achievement there without which without that effort then by those Islamic scholars well everything would be different and probably diminished you know their their preoccupation with finding and translating and understanding the earlier work from the older world the ancient Greek world China and India 
that effort, that curiosity and that fascination and that dedication to learning meant that it could be the, the parcel could then be passed on. Some of it went into Europe and, and people of great in, inspiration and care and, and reason and, and experiment took it on in another direction and, and built on it further. But it's, it's always that reminder that we are dependent on other cultures for the culture that we have. You know, we inherited wisdom from the ancient classical world, but, but we wouldn't have done if it hadn't been for the effort made in the middle by that, that Islamic world at that time. It's, there's also no denying that the Islamic world, it's like burnt out. It's like burnt very brightly for a period of time and then was overtaken. It, it, it fossilised and, and calcified. It's like the stages of a rocket, isn't it? It's like the, the, the stages ignite and, prov and provide the propulsion for a period of time. And, it, and it, they're all needed for that, that thrust that, that gets the rocket, the little capsule, to where it's going to end up being. And I think it's wholly appropriate to be reminded all the time that none of us got to where we are at this point on our own. It was a collective effort by, by thinkers for millennia. And is that the same with Dante, that a lot of people today won't have read it, but it still has an influence? Yeah, well, you're seeing that it does have an influence. And you're also... You know, he's writing that in the 14th century and he's remembering and revering Virgil, who's from the 1st century BC. He's from Rome, but the contribution made by Virgil is, is being valued, remembered and revered in the 14th century. That's part of why you know, Virgil continues to be revered to this day. Also, the, the early Christians acknowledged that even before Jesus was born, a Roman poet, Virgil, seemed to be seeing Jesus coming. You know, so the sun had not risen, but someone like Virgil could sense the glow of it from beyond the horizon of the sun, S-U-N or S-O-N, whichever way you want to spell it. But, you know, he was all those millennia ago, he was seeing that in advance. Virgil is revered for that reason. He was a Christian, the Christians would say, before Christianity existed. That's quite a feat. The Golden Horde, led by Janny Beggar on the prowl, ever battling and expanding their empire, they're laying siege to the rich trading port of Kaffa when a deadly plague breaks out amongst soldiers. Black marks and painful lumps appear on their faces and bodies. Siege catapults are loaded with the bloated, rotting plague corpses and fired over the walls into the besieged city, one of the earliest uses of biological warfare in the world. The Black Death is thereby fired into the port city of Kaffa, and from there, as residents flee aboard ships, it's spread like a spider's web across Europe. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. I'd love to see you there. So would we all. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called the Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast, please tell your friends about it, get them listening, and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. 
For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in a Hundred Moments, and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music's composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar, CFR. Additional research by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production by Althorpe Studios. And the graphics by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.